When we approach Christianity, sometimes uh, one of the most consistent images in the Bible of what it means to live the Christian life is marriage. And um, in a marriage, a real union happens at the wedding. But the union that happens at the wedding is not everything that a marriage is. There is a life that goes on beyond that as you grow into unity with your spouse. And sometimes what can happen in the way we think about what it means to be a Christian is there's this one-time transaction when we have faith in Christ, we make a commitment or recommitment, um, and then our life just kind of goes on from there. But in fact, the image of marriage continues on, and what we are called into is an ongoing relationship with Christ in which there was a real union that took place um, when, we, when we had faith in Him, we turned from our sins to Jesus, and at the same time we continue to grow into Him. Uh, in our union with Him. And the book of Colossians is really Paul over and over explaining all the different ways that it's by God's grace that we continue to grow into Jesus, to grow in to Christian maturity. And tonight, one of the graces that Paul explains is the fact that God pursues His people's holiness with ministers of the gospel. Ministers of the gospel are a grace from God. And what's happening in the verses we're about to read is Paul is reflecting on his own ministry to the church at Colossae. So, Colossians 1, 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and, genera- and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the full riches, the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we consider your word, your word is powerful. By your word you spoke creation into being, but I pray now as we consider your word that you would work new creation into our hearts, that you would soften our hearts that we would hear what you have to say, that we would humbly submit to it, dear God, that you would become sweet and precious to us in a way we've never known. Be with us now, dear God. In your name we pray. Amen. One of the most common images the Bible uses for talking about the ministry um, is shepherding. And uh, in, in... the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about shepherding, about his role as the true shepherd. Um, in First Peter, Peter talks to other elders about the, the uh, importance of shepherding churches. And uh, the reason 
God chose that image of shepherding is because of who sheep are. And uh, to kind of understand, we kind of have to understand who sheep are and, uh, and, or what they're like. And um, here's kind of a brief rundown, um, some kind of research I did on what sheep are like. The image is not flattering for us. Um, sheep can't survive alone. Uh, they have a herd mentality. When they are separate from the herd more than 50 feet, they can actually die from panic. <laughs> they can actually have, if they're more than 50 feet from their herd, doesn't happen all the time, um, but they can actually have a panic attack and die. They can't survive by themselves. They need constant supervision. When you, when you take sheep to a moving river, they have to be watched and cared for, and they actually have to be walked up to the water to drink from it because if they get too far in and their wool gets in the water, the water will actually fill up their wool and pull them into the river. They can't drink water by themselves. Um, um, they're scared of shadows. It's an interesting one. Um, they're untrainable. They, they, they've been, in a sense, domesticated or kept or shepherded by humans for thousands of years. They are untrainable. They only have peripheral vision. They can't see what's right in front of them. Um, they can't find water, and they can't find food. They have to be led to both of those things. Um, they can't walk in a straight line. To cover an extended distance, they walk back and forth. Um, they have no actual defenses in the, in the animal kingdom. They are only prey. They are predator to nothing in the animal kingdom except for grass. Um, and they have no capacity to defend themselves. Um, here's, a, here's a story about uh, sheep that a friend of mine sent me. Um, he read a story in Turkey about uh, some shepherds that lost their entire flock just recently, or well, about a year or two ago. And uh, what happened was they were keeping the sheep on um, a plain that kind of had a cliff on the edge of it. And what happened was one sheep began to wander away um, from the flock and as one sheep wandered away, because they have a herd mentality, actually several sheep started following him, and he wandered off the cliff. And what happened was, uh, let's see, over 2,000 sheep just kept following each other off the cliff. And it got, the first, you know, 1,000 or so sheep died, but the pile actually got so high that the last sheep actually survived because <laughs> they fell on a pile of sheep. Um, <laughs> And the key here is, we could talk a lot about it, we could tell more stories, um, is that it's not just that sheep are weak and can't see, but it's actually that they also don't know it. And that's the most troubling aspect and the most, their, the most dangerous aspect of their condition is that they're weak, they can't see, and, they don't know how, and, they're, not, and they're foolish, and they don't even know it. And you see, we think we're in control, and we think that we can ensure, ensure some kind of security and safety. And it's not just our helplessness that's our drastic estate, but actually the fact that we don't know it. That we continue to believe that we have some kind of sense of control, some kind of sense that we can care for ourselves in this life. For those of you who have been in or had people who are in a horrible car accident, that's kind of one of those moments where all of a sudden you realize nothing is in control. You have control over nothing. The amount of things in your life that you have control of are minuscule. The reason that we need shepherds is because we're sheep. 
It's because we're sheep. We think we are self-sufficient people that we are walking across campus and we are building up our lives and building our resume and building our relationships and that we are strong and independent and self-sufficient. And that's how sheep feel. And it's precisely that instinct they have that gets them into danger. We are sheep. And God in His infinite and good wisdom saw it fit to appoint ministers of His Word for the purpose of shepherding His people. God has set shepherds over His flock. In First Peter, Peter's talking to the elders in the church. So exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, willingly as God would have you, not for gain, but eagerly, not domineering, over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. God, in His gracious wisdom, has set shepherds over the flock. And the reason why is because we're prone to live our lives alone, in our minds, following our good intentions, and that's exactly what sheep do. And we need shepherds. And as we consider this text, there's really actually kind of two ways, two levels on which we're going to consider application. And the first is this. It's to consider the shepherds that we are under, or consider the shepherds that maybe we should be under, to consider who they are. This, this, apply, this is scary for me as I thought about this, as I seek to be uh, a shepherd in this context. Um, and we should be praying for the shepherds. So we should be considering the shepherds God has set over His church, but we should also be considering ourselves, because there is a sense also in which we are all to care for each other as brothers and sisters. We are to bear one another's burdens. We are also, in a sense, really shepherding each other. So think about your shepherds, but also think about yourself. And what we're going to see in this text is really three things. Um, you have them on your outline. The pattern of shepherding. What is the model of shepherding? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is the pattern? Secondly, what is the purpose of shepherding? Why? And then lastly, what is the power for shepherding? The pattern of shepherding, the purpose of shepherding, and the power for shepherding. First, the pattern of shepherding. It begins in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. Now, this passage is one of the most complicated passages in the New Testament. And sometimes what people have said is they've looked at it, maybe at first glance without considering the context, is, is Je- people think, is Jesus saying, or is Paul saying that Jesus' work in the cross was not complete? That there was more atoning work that needed to be done to forgive our sins? And so when we encounter something in Scripture that confuses us, What we need to do is look at the broader context. Is Paul writing a letter and clearly contradicting himself? No. We look at the context within the letter. We look at the context in all of Paul's letters, but in the context of all of Scripture. And all of Scripture, along with the verses immediately before this, testify to this fact. Paul's not saying Jesus didn't finish his work. Paul's not saying that Jesus' blood didn't cover everything, so more blood had to be spilled. We see that immediately in chapter 1, verse 20. We already covered it. And through Jesus, through Him, He he, uh, has reconciled to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. He's giving us this huge picture how it's through Jesus at the cross that He's reconciling all things. 122. He is now reconciled in His body 
of flesh by his death. Again, the picture of Jesus, his work is complete. Um, Ephesians 2.16, he reconciles us to God in one body. Not his body plus Paul's. Hebrews 10, the whole chapter is about how Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. So what Paul's not saying is, he's not saying there was more work to be done in terms of atoning for our sins. So what is he saying? He's saying this, to begin to follow Jesus involves suffering like Jesus. To begin to follow Jesus involves suffering like Jesus for the sake of the church. You see, Jesus actually identifies himself. Some there are times in the New Testament where he says me, and he actually even means the church. In Acts 9, actually, when Saul, who becomes Paul, is converted, Jesus comes to him, knocks him off his horse and comes to him, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, Saul and Jesus had never interacted. Saul was persecuting and killing Christians in the church. Jesus, when he says me, he actually means the church. What's being spoken of here when he talks about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body of the church is this. Christians will follow, will suffer like Jesus as Jesus' body as we live out this life. And for the, until the consummation, until everything is made right again and Jesus returns, there is a certain amount of affliction and suffering that's going to be a part of this life. The suffering of Christ that takes place now is the struggling and the suffering in the life of believers as we participate in the building of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus' death, he inaugurated the kingdom and he secured the kingdom. But in his work for atoning for the sins of his people is complete. But his work of building the kingdom is ongoing. The kingdom is here and now. And yet at the same time, he is establishing it through his people. And so the manner in which he secured and inaugurated the kingdom, namely death, is also the manner or the feel or the pattern in which, by which we build the kingdom. We build it, and some people have said, on the blood of martyrs. It's the suffering of the saints, which is God's church growth technique. The suffering of the saints is God's church growth technique. That means there's more suffering to be had until all things are made new. And that suffering is ours. And that's the feel of shepherding. But it's also, it's also, it's not just the feel of shepherding. It's the feel of the Christian life. It will be toil. It will be struggling. It will be laboring. It will be even death. So suffering is a normal part of the Christian life, but secondly, it's a certain kind of suffering that Paul's addressing here. Why would he do something like this? Now, there are times in which we are actually struggling and suffer, struggling against our own sin, but that's not the kind of struggling, that's not the kind of toil he's talking about here. This is a suffering, a struggle, a toil that is other-oriented. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul's not talking about his own personal struggle with sin. He's talking about a toil, a suffering for the sake of the church, on behalf of the church. Now, a couple of points of application. First of all, this is a call away from a life oriented towards ease and comfort and convenience. A life that's oriented around ourselves. This goes against 
our entire approach to life in a lot of ways, the suffering of following Christ stands in opposition to our goals in life because what it is is I pour my life out for other people. And it's not pour my life out like, oh, when it's convenient. No, it means pour your life out. See, we're in deep pursuit. I mean, in some ways, um, you know, somebody made this point one time. Idols demand the blood of innocence. And you can look at any culture and you can see the idols they serve because you can, when you look at where they shed blood. The place we shed blood is in the abortion clinics. That serves the idol of comfort, convenience, and ease. And we as a culture, some of us, that's our story in this room. Some of us, it's not. That's our culture. Those are the idols of our culture. We are trying to make life easy and comfortable and convenient. And we can look in our lives. What happens when our relationships get hard? What happens when our roommate gets really needy and clingy? We run. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. What happens when churches get messy? We run. What, peop- what happens when people come into our group of friends and they're odd? They don't laugh at our jokes. They don't listen to our music. We don't know how to relate to them. We hold them at arm's distance. Because what we want is a comfortable, easy, convenient existence. And Paul, in order Jesus, is calling us to something wholly other. To follow Jesus means that you suffer on behalf of His church. But there's also comfort in this. Because we don't serve a God that's up there, that's distant, that doesn't identify with us. Our God is a God who's acquainted, deeply acquainted with suffering. He suffered for us, and He even suffers in and with us now. When Elizabeth and I's children experience pain, we experience it more acutely. God is not distant. Some of you, many of you are struggling, and you're struggling for the sake of the church, for other people. And be comforted by the fact we have a God who is well acquainted with your suffering. He has suffered for you and He suffers in and with you now. So first of all, when we think about ourselves, this, this calls, us a, uh, towards a, um, sorry, calls us to a life um, of disease, of discomfort, of inconvenience, as we begin to think about and love on and pursue other people. But also, we have to think about the shepherds over us. And this means that good shepherds die for their flock. The way it was said at Mount Ordination um, uh, uh, sermon was the pastor got up and he says, Britain, for you to be in ministry, this is the scariest night of my life, still is. He said, it means you leave home and you get dirty and die because that's what Jesus did. Several years ago when we were in seminary, um, I received some heavy legitimate criticism um, from somebody and it really unnerved me. I didn't know if I should be continue to pursue ministry and I was really scared and it was late at night when I received it. And um, I called my pastor at 11.30 at night. He has little kids and he talked to me for an hour and a half and he comforted me and he was strong. He said he talked about how some of the criticisms were legit. Um, Elizabeth and I have a, the man who really pastored us lives in Knoxville and um our kids, we love them. They wear us out. And last fall, we just said, John, can we just come and dump our whole family in your house in Knoxville? We drove four and a half hours, and we destroyed this entire weekend, the weekend of his wife and all his kids. And we brought that, and our family is chaos. We're bringing a storm when we bring our family. <laughs> and he opened up his home, and he let us destroy his house and, and destroy their weekend plans. 
He's a pastor. Um, my senior year in college, I was getting ready to graduate, and I was beginning to think about ministry. And um, I was the guy in RUF that walked in every week harboring all kinds of secrets that I had been lying to everybody about. And um, the, the campus minister there had been lying to him for two years, finally found out about all the lies I had been living. My second semester, senior year, he called me into his office one day, and I thought we were just going to hang out and talk Alabama football. And um, he put our relationship on the line, and he met me with tears in his eyes, and he wept, and he confronted me. And it's one of the seminal moments in my life as a Christian, the fact that he pursued me, the fact that he was, he was willing to throw everything out the window for our relationship, and he wept for me. We need shepherds who will run after us, who will fight with us, for us, even when we hate them for it. Verse 28 actually says, talking about um, what we do, we, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. There are two sides to the way He's talking about shepherds minister the Word of God. They teach the Word of God. They present it in a positive manner, but also there's this word warning. And what this word warning is, the sense of set our minds in order, is the sense of correction. We need shepherds who are willing to confront us. We don't need shepherds who are going to be yes men. And that's precisely what Stuart did. And that's precisely what men still do in my life. We need shepherds. The pattern of shepherding is the pattern of Jesus on the cross. It is a pattern of suffering on the behalf of other people. The purpose of shepherding, Paul also articulates in this passage in verse 25 Oh, I'll start in verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is, the la- what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body that is the truth, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The first thing to see as we look at the, ta- uh, the purpose of shepherding is first of all the purpose is grounded in the Word of God. The Word of God, the stewardship from God that was given to me for you for the purpose of making the Word of God fully known. When he says this word fully known, what he's not saying is this intellectual ability to recite facts about the Bible. There are people in the religion department here that don't believe in Jesus, don't believe He existed, and can tell you more true things about the Bible than I can, than most of us can. That's not what he's talking about here when he's talking about making the Bible fully known. The Word is actually making the Word of God fulfilled among you. It's this rich sense of bringing the Word of God and preaching it in a way and having the Holy Spirit attend to it such that faith and love get worked in our hearts that we draw near to Jesus. Isaiah 55, 11 says, The Word of God goes out and it never returns void. When the Word of God happens, stuff is happening in everybody's heart. And it's essentially one of two things. Hearts are either getting hardened or softened. A shepherd is to make the Word of God present and put it out there in front of God's people. And the Word of God is always at work. And it's either at work hardening our hearts or softening our hearts. And what does the Bible teach? What does it principally teach? Well, it's the word about Christ. When Paul talks about his ministry the church of Corinth, he says, I do one thing. I know one thing in front of all of y'all. Christ and Him crucified. He's got one thing to say. 
Jesus over and over again, several different ways, and Him crucified. When Jesus actually rose from the dead, He met some people on the road who didn't know what had gone, that, uh, who, who were confused about the events. And He met them, He said, what's going on? They said, well, there's this guy, he's supposed to be the king of the Jews, and He said he's going to get resurrected. People went to the tomb and it's empty, but nobody knows what's going on. And they didn't recognize him at first. And then he kind of reveals himself to him. And then the next thing we see in Luke 24 is the best small group Bible study ever. Because what it says is Jesus, starting with Moses and the prophets, went through the whole Old Testament and explained to them what it meant concerning him. Jesus read the old, went through the entire Old Testament to them and said, It's about me. The purpose of shepherding is the Word of God being preached, is based on the Word of God. But secondly, and this is really in some ways the heart of this passage, it's seeking maturity in Christ. It is seeking growth and maturity in Christ. Paul's purpose in all of this is articulated in verse 26. um, Excuse me, verse 27, uh, 26 through 28. Or... I'm sorry, 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The purpose of Paul's shepherding is Christian maturity. Mature in Christ. And here's a simple definition for it. Christian maturity is Christ-focus. Christian maturity is Christ-focused. It is when Christ is your hope of glory. See, all throughout the Old Testament, there's this, there's this mystery unfolding. In Daniel 2, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams and he doesn't know what they're about. It's all these kingdoms getting built and then crushed until eventually this everlasting kingdom is built. And he doesn't know what it means. And Daniel comes to him. He explains, this is one of the mysteries of God. God is building an everlasting kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar says in 2, verses four, verse 47, Truly your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, uh, sorry, king, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. 1 Peter 1, 10, 11, Concerning this salvation that Peter's talking about in the New Testament, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Old Testament is a huge story of anticipation of the mystery of God, of the mystery of how He's fixing the world to be revealed. And they are standing just on the other side of that revelation. The revelation is the purpose, excuse me, is the person of Jesus. He is the mystery all of creation had been anticipating. One way to categorize this Old Testament is the story of waiting for the mystery of God, how God would fix it, and it's the person of Christ. And the mystery which they awaited is actually not just the news about Christ. Look at what he says. He says, um, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Very personal, relational terms. It's not just news about Christ, but Christ at work in His people, that God is near, that God is in us, He is with us. We are Jesus and He is ours. Christian maturity is really understanding and growing in that. It is Christ's focus. He explains it a different way in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, 
And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of the, and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Though I'm absent with you, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. He's explaining what Christian maturity looks like. I'm excited to see your firmness in Christ. And this is what it looks like. Christian maturity, the key to Christian maturity is is not using Jesus to make yourself a better person. And that's often the way we think of it. A friend of mine, Sean Slate, he's a campus minister at Virginia, he, points, he pointed out this to me. He said, when we think about our own maturity, we think about other people. We, th- we think about other people and what we do or don't do with regard to them or relative to them, and then also what they do and don't do relative to us. When we think about maturity, it's commonly a comparison between ourselves and others. And you see, what Paul's doing here is he's saying, maturity is when you stop thinking about yourself. And your eyes and your hearts are fixated upon Jesus instead of being depressingly fixated on ourselves. And this is why when he describes Christian maturity, he says um, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Christian maturity is Christ's focus. And when we are focused on Christ, what happens is actually the church is knit together in love. There's nothing more uniting than a common focus. Last Thursday... We all did it, went around our business all day. You didn't interact with all kinds of people on campus that you wouldn't normally talk to. The, the people that you don't see, that you don't interact with. We're stuck in all our own little stories with our own assignments and our own relational anxieties, but what happened on Thursday night? We walked into a stadium, and everybody here high-fived and hugged somebody you didn't know. <laughs> right? Adam Yates high-fived probably tons of people. Um People who we would never hang out with normally. People who look nothing like us. People with different socioeconomic classes, different races. Whatever it is, we partied with. Why? Because our eyes and our hearts were fixed on the same thing. Something bigger than us. Something that transcended us. Christian maturity is Christ-focused. One of the things it does, it knits the church together in love. But it also gives assurance, the assurance of knowledge of Christ. We are looking for assurance in all of our work, in all of our relationships, in everything we do every day, in our friendships, in the things that we can accrue for ourselves, the material things. But when we turn, and we have no capacity to give ourselves any assurance. That's why we're still struggling for it. But when we turn our gaze upon Jesus, He has the power, He has the ability, and He has the character to secure us, to give us assurance. Our assurance is no longer in our own ability, but it's in Jesus and it's in His power and His character. Wouldn't you find so much more rest in knowing that it's Jesus' character, that it's His power that secures you instead of the stuff you can do today to give you peace? In Him are hidden all the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The goal of ministry, the goal of Shepherding is to lift our eyes and our hearts and our affections and our attention off of ourselves and onto Jesus. And you see, we're oftentimes bored with Christianity. And that sounds oftentimes boring with us because we want a religion that centers around and is built on our own personality. And so we avoid difficult people. 
and we dismiss parts of Scripture that confront us and we create a religion in which we're at the center and our hope of glory is not Jesus, but it's what we can accomplish. It's the girl or the guy that we can get. It's the grad school we can get into, the theology we can know, success in the intramural field. That's some, you know, some people are doing better in that department now than they were a week ago. Um, the attention, the admiration of people around us, whatever it is, Jesus is a sad show. Our hope of glory is what we can get for ourselves, and that leaves us incredibly confused, insecure, lacking in wisdom. And we're bored with Jesus because those aren't the things he's offering. And we need a shepherd that cares more about our conformity to Christ than we do. Somebody who doesn't care about our other lovers, but someone who sets Jesus before our eyes over and over and over again and says, look at him. And says, all the things that you're looking for in this world are found in Jesus. Stop navel-gazing and looking at Jesus. We don't need an innovator. We don't need a powerful program uh, director. We don't need an entertainer. We think the problem with the church is that it's boring, and I submit that maybe one of the reasons that we feel like the church is boring is because we think its responsibility is to entertain us. And as long as we demand the church to entertain us and to cater to our personality and our particular tastes and preferences, we'll be happy for a while until our preferences change, and then we'll just move on. And we'll find what the bulk of the churches are in this country are little tiny country churches with old people that smell funny and wear old clothes and play horrible music, we'll find them so irritating when in reality some of the sweetest communion with Jesus takes place in those churches. Bad music. Smelly. Horribly out of fashion clothes. One of the things uh, C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Screwtape Letters, Screw tape letters is the senior demon talking to a younger demon um, about how to lead a Christian out of Christianity. And in his second chapter, he actually says one of the best tools you have is to make them not like the fashion sense of the people in the pews with you. C.S. Lewis contends that one of the best tools Satan has is to make us not like the tastes and preferences that mean nothing, but not make us not like and be uncomfortable with the tastes and preferences and even the fashion sense of the people in the pew next to us. Y'all, in heaven, there are going to be people in skinny jeans and seersucker suits. It's really going to happen, believe it or not. Maybe even combined. There are going to be people with hipster hair. There are going to be balding people and there are going to be people with frat guy hair. Uh, there are going to be tennis moms that drive expeditions, maybe, possibly even excursions. And there are going to be college students that drive Corollas. Guess what? They're going to sing songs, all the songs that exalt Jesus, and some of them might have electric guitars, and some of them might even have organs. Because Jesus is the center of worship, and those things are merely preferences. They're accidents. They're on the side. And as long as we let those things determine whether or not we're involved in the life of the church, it actually fundamentally means we don't understand who Jesus is. He's the object of worship. He's the person that draws us into worship. I'm not saying all churches should look the same. They really, in a lot of ways, shouldn't. But if the style and the fashion are what determine your participation in the church, then really, in a sense, you don't know who Jesus is. You don't know that he's the center of worship. We need a shepherd who's not concerned 
with entertaining. He's not concerned with building his own following. He's not concerned with being a yes man. We don't need a shepherd who won't confront us. We need a shepherd who cares more about our holiness than we do. Who cares more about our Christ-likeness than we do. And all these principles actually apply in all of your friendships as well. All of our friendships. As brothers and sisters, we are here to bear each other's burdens. And it will only be if our eyes are fixed upon Jesus that we'll have the capacity to care more for our friends' holiness than maybe they do. The pattern of shepherding is, Christ, is, is suffering like Christ. The purpose of shepherding is, to, is seeking maturity in Christ. But lastly, where do you get the power to do that? In verse 29, is really sits at the center of this passage. And he says, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. What Paul is doing here is he's deflecting. He's saying, not me. It's not me. Even as I talk to you about my ministry to you, it's not about me. When I struggle for you, this is what Paul is saying, it's Christ in me. It's Him working powerfully in me. What Paul is not doing is he's not, what Paul is doing is he's not lifting himself up. He's deflecting attention away from himself and saying, my ministry is a result of Christ at work in me. If you want to see who Paul is without Christ at work in him, go to Acts 8. He kills, he sanctions the killing of Christians. That's who Paul is without Christ at work in him. That's who he is. That's Saul of Tarsus. He's saying, I have nothing to offer you as Saul of Tarsus. But as Paul, one whom Christ has pursued, whom Christ has loved, I can't point you to myself, but I can point you to Him, the man who saved me, the God who saved me. And even when I do that, when I point you to Him, it's Him at work in me. We need shepherds that know that they're sheep. That's what Paul's demonstrating. We need shepherds that know that they're sheep and that they need the true shepherd like we all do. A shepherd is not a spiritual elite. A pastor is not a spiritual elite. Paul's recognizing when he says, Him we proclaim warning everyone, teaching everyone, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Do you hear? There's a repetition there about everyone. He's saying everybody comes to maturity in Christ. There's not an elite. There's not a first level, second level, third level. A pastor is really... It's a, he's a beggar who was given food that's telling other beggars where to get food. Pastor is not a physician. God is the great physician. A pastor is someone who is healed telling other people where they can find healing. A pastor is a shepherd that's a sheep. And who can point us to the true shepherd, John ten fourteen. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for my sheep. It's funny that I told the story to my shame earlier. It's not lost to me tonight that I'm standing up here. I'm trying to figure out how to pastor and shepherd y'all. Um, in the microscope, you're, you'd be right to place it on me. That's what God and that's what actually the church has called me to do. Um, and the only reason I haven't quit is because God has repeatedly revealed to me that it's necessary I know how inadequate I am in order to stand up here. So I've encountered a lot of failure in the next three years. I'm going to encounter a whole lot more in my own life. And God needs me to know that I don't have it together so that all I can hand you, like don't act like me on the intramural field, right? I don't have anything to offer you there. All I can hand you is Jesus. 
That's all I have to offer y'all. Don't be a dad like me. Don't be a friend like me. Don't be a smart act like me. And definitely don't compete like me on the intramural field. Be a needy person like me. Y'all saw my need. You saw my arrogance. You saw my idiocy on the intramural field. I got nothing to offer y'all. I really don't. All I can commend to you about myself is that I'm sick, is that I'm selfish, that I'm dejected. I cry at night because of how bad of a father I am. I cry at night because my, my, my mind and my eyes wander from my wife. I cry at night. breaks my heart because I give y'all bad advice. I go home and I can't, I go, I can't believe I said that. All I have for y'all is Jesus. And I'm not being self-deprecating. This is not a game. And, and if you walk out of here going, Oh, Britain's so, he's so honest and genuine. You haven't heard what I'm saying. You don't even know the half of the darkness that's in my heart. Go away saying, Jesus saves even people like him. That means he can save y'all. What I hope happens in RUF for all of us is that we all labor together and that Jesus becomes more precious to all of us. I love the last verse and a half, well, really the whole song, but especially the last verse and a half of Beneath the Cross of Jesus. Um, the second verse ends this way, And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of his glorious love and my unworthiness. That's what I have. I have my unworthiness and his glorious love. I take, O cross, thy shadow as my abiding place, I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face, content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss. My sinful self, who I am, is my only shame. My only glory is the cross. All that we have to offer each other, all that I have to offer you in RUF, all that a good shepherd has to offer you is Jesus. Let's pray.